0: It's time to play like a jet with your host Scott Mason play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the pro steps up floats a bomb up the right seam looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. a deflected. and picked up Anderson. He'll take it in. It's a pick six and a touchdown. Fell into the middle of that line and it's a touchdown big return for crowder 85 yards Pass road there was contact with a quarterback and it's incomplete they got pressure on prescott it was adams who came blitzing in he hit immediately Everybody got the handoff you know and that's <laughs> the q oh my gosh listen. thank you
2: from the TOJ Digital Studios courtesy of the Athletic, a subscription-based sports news site for real fans. It's a great mix of national voices that you already know like Jay Glazer, Mike Sandel, Mike Lombardi, the late great Don Banks for the Athletic too, and awesome local writers. In fact, one of my buddies Harif Hassan covers the Vikings and I was just reading an awesome article that he wrote about this critical offseason for the Vikings. So if you're somebody that likes coverage of your own team, Great, plenty of that, but if you're somebody that likes coverage of other teams like I do, you can get tons of great writers that cover teams besides your own, and as I said, great national writers too. And here's the best part, not only do you get first-rate reporting, but you get all kinds of great analysis, advanced analytics, in-depth player profiles, and more, and it's completely ad-free. No clickbait, just great content. Pro sports, college sports, The Athletic has it all. So if you're not subscribing yet, you're really missing out. Want to get in on the action? I got a great deal for you. Just for being a Play Like a Jet listener, you can go to theathletic.com slash overtime, all lowercase letters, and you'll get yourself 40% off a year subscription. 40%, that's a lot. Go to TheAthletic.com slash Overtime, all lowercase letters, and get all of this fantastic sports coverage in The Athletic for 40% off today. This is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And I am joined for midweek with Manish by the beat reporter and columnist covering the New York Jets for the New York Daily News. Manish Mehta, we're doing it a day early today. Because We've got Clayton Smarslock coming on tomorrow for a report from Mobile, Alabama at the Senior Bowl and Senior Bowl practices. So really looking forward to that. But today, we're going to look back on the Rex Ryan era. This is part two of this series. Manish has a ton of fun stories from the Jets beat that we're going to get into over the next couple of weeks. Last week we left off talking about the coaching staff that Rex Ryan picked and the fact that it was an interesting mix of guys that were already here on the existing staff and guys that Rex Ryan brought in with him from Baltimore. One of the guys on that staff was Sal Alosi, who is the strength and conditioning coach. And Manish, you mentioned the tripping incident with Sal Alosi, which we'll talk about later on. Because obviously that's something where there's an entertaining story to tell. But I do want to talk about Mike Westhoff a little bit and just say that I'm with you. I really wish that he would have gotten an opportunity to be a head coach because I think he would have been an awesome head coach. As you said, a stigma against special teams coaches And I was hoping that John Harbaugh's success would open up the door for more. Up until now, it hadn't until Joe Judge got hired by the Giants. So there's a part of me that actually wants Joe Judge to succeed just so we get to see more special teams coordinators like Brant Boyer. And like Darren Rizzi, get an opportunity to be a head coach. But of course, I also hate the Giants, so the bigger part of me wants them to fail. So sorry, Joe Judge, I would like to see you do well, but you took the Giants' job, so it is what it is. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about was Dennis Thurman, because what a character this guy was, and there are a ton of stories about this in Collision Low Crossers, and we talked about this during our series on 2011 with the author of that book, Nicholas Dowdoff, and one of my favorite stories, Manish. Is when the song Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel One of the most famous songs of all time was playing And somehow there was a conversation that ensued Where Nicholas Dowadoff talked about the song And Dennis Thurman said he had never listened to the song And he said come on how could you have never listened to the song And eventually he got Dennis Thurman to admit that he had heard of the song But in the words of Dennis Thurman, he'd heard of it, but quote, I never actually went ahead and listened to it. So that's kind (laughs) of what Dennis Thurman was about. And you also heard Jamal Westerman on the show tell a funny Dennis Thurman story a couple of weeks ago where Jamal would show up. In 2009, when he was an undrafted free agent, still wearing his Rutgers stuff, trying to make the team. And Dennis Thurman cursed at him in a joking, playful way, saying, Don't you have anything other than Rutgers gear? We're getting tired of that. So he was certainly <laughs> a character, one of those guys where if you talk to somebody that worked with him or was one of his players, you could get hours and hours worth of stories. But now I want to talk a little bit about the players, Manish, because Rex made it clear that he was going to remake the Jets in his image And he did that first with the coaching staff, and then he went out and made two major impact moves right off the bat in free agency. In fact, the folklore is that he was waiting on Bart Scott's steps as soon as midnight struck when free agency started. But he went out and he got his inside linebacker, Bart Scott, who had been one of his key guys in Baltimore. And then, of course, Jim Leonard, the safety, who has now done a really great job. In Wisconsin, and he's another one that Rex wanted because he had been one of his key guys on the defense in Baltimore. So right off the bat, Rex striking in free agency, bringing in two impact players and two guys that he knew he could trust.
1: Yeah, Bart was uh, the guy that he really targeted, the guy that he wanted because you know he knew Bart's leadership traits. Uh, he knew uh, that he was an emerging player, a guy who had really improved uh, under Rex uh, with the Ravens. You know, he wasn't a particularly highly touted player he was undrafted for a reason this isn't a guy who's, who stood out in college but he got better he improved every year actually made the pro bowl in uh I don't I think it was 2006 uh, with the Ravens uh you know ascending young player not, you know guy in his prime I don't know if he was young but uh, you know he was in his prime and a guy that Rex believed could could really be the engine of their defense uh, in terms of leadership and, and he was right uh, Bart was great uh, those first couple years. He installed an attitude. He also helped uh, along the the players in terms of understanding Rex's scheme. And he was a guy that Rex felt could be their Ray Lewis. Obviously, you know, not, not that same skill, but you know, that same uh, you know value uh, in terms of leadership. And he was right. It was a uh, it was a terrific signing. Bart was really a breath of fresh air, uh, a leader, a productive, highly productive player in, in those early years, a guy that Rex zeroed in on for a reason. And then that's what I was saying earlier about Rex's football IQ. He knew which type of players he needed right away to you know again, to, to help the, the guys who hadn't played for Rex understand Rex's scheme, understand what Rex was all about, and also, by the way, play at a high level. And Bart fit that to a T. Uh, Jim Leonard, to me, is one of the best stories. Uh, you know, th- uh, of those 2009, 2010 teams. Uh, I, you know, I think he was five nine. If if you saw him in the locker room, you probably thought that he was a clubhouse guy or, <laughs> uh, you know, an intern. He didn't look like a football player. He was. Uh, I think I was taller than him. Frankly, I think I saw. saw I saw my. Eye, eye, literally. But he was such a smart player, such an instinctive player. Uh, and you know, I could make a, a very solid case that, that Jim Leonard was the best athlete on the 2009 Jets, and people would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How could you say that? You know, got, you know, they got these freak athletes in there. How could a guy who's was like 5'9", 185, or whatever he was, be the best athlete? But this guy was a great basketball player. I think he ran track. He was an incredible pitcher. Uh, in high school he could have played college, he could have played uh, baseball I think I think it was track uh, maybe basketball he played like four sports and was like incredible in high school and could have played uh, at the college level in, in any of those sports uh, you know maybe like a d3 for basketball because he wasn't tall enough but just an incredible athlete a smart a smart instinctive underrated player uh, that Brex again was smart enough to recognize would be so helpful to to their team and you know I think back to you know, all those you know, pivotal moments in those first few years and I remember in 2010 and we can get into details when we talk about 2010 but uh, I remember a primetime game in which the Jets lost in Foxborough 45 to 3 and a couple days earlier Jim Leonard got hurt in practice and it kind of threw their whole defensive scheme out of whack and uh, they didn't have enough time to adjust properly and to this day, I don't know if the Jets would have won that game if Leonard never got hurt. Uh, I believe it was on a Thursday or a Friday in practice. If Leonard was in that game, I don't know if they would have won the game, but I can assure you that they wouldn't have gotten blown out in the fashion that they did uh, because they just didn't have enough time to prepare without someone who was so invaluable. And then you saw about a month or so later the Jets go into Foxborough and beat the Patriots in the playoffs and avenge that loss. But, uh, but just, a, just a, a really valuable piece to this puzzle and uh rex identifying both bart and jim leonard uh was was crucial you know to, to set to getting things off on the right foot
2: other key moves the jets make a deal with the philadelphia eagles sending a 2009 fifth round pick and a 2010 conditional draft pick for former pro bowler lito Shepard. so rex gets a corner to help out with darrell revis And then also a sad moment for Jets fans as Lavernius Coles and the Jets could not come to terms on reworking his contract, so they end up releasing him. Manish, what do you remember about these moves? I know Rex had to have been excited to get Leto Shepard because he wanted somebody desperately across from Darrell Rivas, who, as we'll get into later, he really believed in as the best cornerback in the league. Turned out to be right, by the way. And then Lavernius Coles ends up leaving, and a lot of Jets fans were sad about that because he was one of the most popular players of the last 20, 30 years or so. Just the guy that was always producing, always laying his body out on the line, and so for him to be gone was a moment that was sort of bittersweet. I know that everybody realized he wasn't at his best anymore, but still had been a productive player with Brett Favre the year before. So what do you remember about the Jets getting Lido Shepard and saying goodbye to Lavernius Coles?
1: Yeah, Coles was still a productive player statistically uh, for Mangini in 2018. But, look, he only played uh, one more season before before retiring. He was on the wrong side of 30 so I do understand, you know, the, the affinity for the fa- that the fan base had for him. Of course, uh, you know, being with the Jets two different times, but uh, he was at the tail end of his career. Even though statistically, you know, he wasn't horrible uh, in that in that 2008 season. Uh, leadership Shepard was important. Uh, the, the thing about Rex that uh, I learned quickly was that he he viewed defense uh, differently than a lot of people view defense because. You know, most teams will say, and you even hear Joe Douglas say this this now, you know, you build in the trenches and you build, uh, you know, inside out. So you build from the line to that second level linebackers and then to your secondary. Rex always felt the opposite, you know, for better or for worse. He always felt that you should build from the outside in, uh, in that you need to have strong cornerbacks. And there's a, you know, there's a story that Ozzie Newsome, you know, would, would joke uh, to people about, and, he, and Ozzie said this to me at one point as well, which was, you know, Rex would, you know, it no matter Rex goes where Rex goes, ultimately, because you know, Ozzie always felt that Rex would be a head coach at some point, uh, Ozzie said that he would have a sign saying, you know, we'll work for cornerbacks, uh, we'll do anything for cornerbacks, you know, cornerbacks wanted, because Rex could never have enough cornerbacks. He felt that that was the key to his system, if you have strong uh, players on the back end, that will would open up creative things for Rex uh, in terms of doing things schematically. And, and, you know, we obviously saw that because he ended up having the, the best cornerback in football at that time in, in Darrell Revis. But just generally speaking, Rex always felt that philosophically you build from the outside in and, and that's why, you know, he was so successful having Rivas and Lito you know, Lito did a nice job in 2009. Uh, obviously, they these guys took it to a different level when they brought in Antonio Cromartie, and the Cromartie Revis tandem was was ter- was so good. You know, you rarely see that because you rarely see a cornerback like Revis, and then to pair him with another Pro Bowl type player like uh, Antonio Cromartie is rare because teams don't like cornerbacks like that to shake free. So to have two of those types of players uh, in Rex's system was. It was like heaven for him, and he could do so many different things, uh, in other areas of the field. And that's, you know, what made that 2010, the 2010 team better. You know, I think much better, frankly, than the 2009 team because he had those two corners to work with. But, uh, but yeah, Leto was important for that first season. And, uh, even though, you know, the fan base you know, hated to see Coles go, ultimately, I think, uh, you know, the, they they replaced him uh, pretty well uh, early in that 2019 season when they made a trade for Braylon Edwards.
2: Manish, the big question after all this was done was what were the Jets going to do at quarterback? Because Brett Favre had been here in 2008, but nobody knew if he was going to come back. And the way things ended, there were a lot of Jets fans that were very bitter, very angry, and didn't necessarily want Brett Favre back. But it's my understanding that Rex Ryan was not one of those people. He did want Brett Favre back and tried to talk him into staying, right?
1: Yeah, and he mentioned that actually when he was introduced that he, you know, he wanted he he wanted him back. I, I don't, you know, I just I don't think that was practical. Uh, you know, if you're Rex, or if you're anybody in Rex's position, frankly, and you're coming into a new a new job, you've got Brett Favre as a possible option. It's hard to turn him down because remember at that time. The Jets did not have the number five pick; they had the 17th pick in the draft. You didn't know uh, what was viable uh, in the draft at that position. No, they subsequently got really aggressive with Mike T and Eric Mangini making that deal to jump from 17 to five. But uh, at the time of the hiring, uh, you, you know, I think the the easy option would have been to you know have Brett, Brett Favre have the surgery and and bring him back. Uh, I think it was, it was pretty evident uh, that. Brett Favre was not done because of all the success he had in that season with the with the Vikings, but uh, you know I, I would have been interested to see what this team could have done in thousand and nine with a healthy Brett Favre, even though Favre was thirty nine or forty years old. Um, you know you can't get that much farther than where Mark Sanchez went with the team, but I'm wondering if you know if, if Favre were the quarterback would have they would have they they made it to the super bowl could they have won the super bowl uh you know ultimately they 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 had to turn the page at some point because of uh Favre's age but uh but the jets you know went with sanchez they thought he was going to be their answer uh, after making that aggressive move up and you know we can talk about the details about the pre-draft process and all of that but uh i think you know anybody in rex's spot would love to have the known over the unknown at the quarterback position and, uh, you know, that's one of the, the things about Rex that I wish things would have been different for him. Uh, I wish that he would have had, a you know, a, a quality veteran quarterback during his time as opposed to Mark Sanchez, who had promise you know, coming into the league but ultimately you know didn't live up to all, all, you know, all the hype, and Geno Smith, who obviously didn't live up to the hype either. And I always wonder if, if Rex had a veteran quarterback, uh, you know, what could he have done? Uh, could he have gone to the Super Bowl? Could they have been a sustainable... Uh, playoff team for three four five six years uh i tend to think yes only because i've got a lot of uh, faith in rex's ability to handle the defense i think that if he had a you know a better quarterback i thought this in buffalo as well if he had a better quarterback that you know he, he could be a sustainable winner and and that's one of the things i know rex thinks about now when he, when he looks back at his tenure as a head coach you know what would have things been like if uh you know he, he, he was better equipped at that position
2: Should mention that if you want to hear all about Brett Favre's one season with the Jets, we've got it in our archives, the 2008 season, as told by Kerry Rhodes. So you can go ahead and check that out. But, Manish, once the Jets get the word that Brett Favre is not interested in coming back, it almost seems like they have no plan. And so this is what I wanted to ask you about before we get to draft day. Was the plan all along to draft somebody because it seemed like they had no sense of urgency in getting any kind of veteran in
0: here?
1: Well, I don't think they would have been fine with Kellen Clemens being their 2009 starter, uh, if that's what you're asking. (laughs) (laughs) And I I also will say that Tannenbaum is aggressive by nature, so uh, it's hard to definitively say that he knew that this type of trade could happen, but I think he was going to try to make something happen because the notion of going into Rex Ryan's first season with Kellen Clemens as the quarterback—I uh, I, I could be wrong about this—I uh, I don't remember anyone telling me that, that they would have been fine with that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe they would have, but like if memory serves, I, I don't remember exactly what uh, you know what they planned to do other than to try to make some kind of move in the draft uh, again. I, you know, they had to make. An ultra aggressive move to even be in position to get Sanchez. Uh, if they didn't get Sanchez, and if they couldn't make a trade, and they were they were stuck, you know, for lack of a better word, at seventeen, what would they have done? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that.
2: Manish, we'll get to the actual trade in a bit, but first, let's talk about the pre-draft process. So, Mark Sanchez was considered a guy that could go in the first round. There were some questions about him because he hadn't played that many games at USC. Josh Freeman from Kansas State was another guy that was thought to be in play at number 17 as the draft process unfolded. Big arm, somebody that people thought could be a really good quarterback. Everybody knew that Matthew Stafford was going to go number one overall to the Detroit Lions, which ended up happening. But then as the pre-draft process unfolded, Mark Sanchez started to rise up the board and the story has now become stuff of legends, the meeting between Mark Sanchez, Rex Ryan and Mike Tannenbaum. And it seems to me that the story Rex Ryan tells in his book, and that has been told in other places as well, about them going out to dinner and Sanchez just wowing them with his personality, and the whole joke about him getting onto the Harley and them looking at him like, oh my god, this kid rides a Harley, he's some sort of daredevil, and then him just saying, ah, just kidding guys, and they all laughed. It almost feels like Rex sees a little bit of himself in Mark Sanchez as this pre-draft process unfolds, doesn't it?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I think they were much different personality-wise. Uh, but those guys are both charismatic in, in, in their own way. Uh, Rex's charisma is well-documented. Uh, Sanchez has, you know, he, he, Mark is a very likable person. I, mean, I, I always felt him to be a very solid guy who is engaging and, you know, look, he's a, he's a, he's a different guy in so many respects. Uh, now that he's, you know, uh, over 30, I think. I don't even remember how old he is now, but uh, as opposed to right out of college. Uh, but, he, you know, he's a very engaging kid. He, you know, he comes from a really good family. And uh, I think that the confidence that Sanchez uh, exuded at that time was very appealing to Rex. Uh, you know, you mentioned that Harley story. It's a great story. I think it's funny. Uh, I've always thought he was funny in hearing hearing Rex retell the story and hearing Mark retell the story. Uh, yeah. You know, that being said, that, that's not the reason that they wanted him. They, they wanted him because they, they thought that he had a future as a quarterback, a real future as a quarterback. Uh, you know, it's interesting because Pete Carroll thought that Sanchez probably should have stayed in college uh, one more year. Uh, you know, in, in retrospect, perhaps, you know, that was the sound advice. But, uh, you know, it's hard to argue with team success, at least in that first year, but Sanchez was, you know, he was a really good player in college. Statistically, he was a really good player. It's just that, you know, those USC teams had such great talent, and Mark was thrown to a lot of open receivers from what I remember. And I don't, I didn't dissect every play of his 2008 season, but uh, I just remember, you know, thinking, oh, these guys that he's throwing to are open by three, four, five yards. Uh, not to say that anybody can make those throws, but – you know, those weren't necessarily tight window throws, uh, but he had uh, a lot of ability. He was a very young player at the time, and uh, yeah, I can see why Woody, Rex, Tannenbaum all, all fell in love with the guy. You know, they, they were hoping for a franchise quarterback, much like the Jets were hoping a couple years ago for a franchise quarterback. When you don't have one for such a long time, and the, when the franchises uh, not had one for, you know, for such a long time, when you see a possibility in a guy maybe you make more of it uh, of it than what it actually is uh, or, you know or, or maybe they saw it, Sanchez in the exact right light maybe Sanchez could uh, you know have been a star player if circumstances were different uh, whether that means supporting cast or coaching uh, whatever I mean, there's a million of factors we'll never know the answer to it uh, i think that this you know, you know, the biggest uh, drawback, I guess, maybe that's not the right word, but, you know, the biggest uh, criticism I'll, I'll have for Sanchez uh, was that I, I'm not sure he had the inner confidence that he, he needed to overcome some of those early obstacles. You know, I, I, I'm not saying that he wasn't confident in his own abilities, I just don't think that it was perhaps strong enough to overcome some of those, those early challenges that he had in his career. Because you're always going to go through rough moments. And when you're in that type of environment, New York, it's such a crucible. Uh, everyone's looking at you. you. know, He was the golden boy from the jump, and everything was dissected, you know, where he was going. I remember a story one day, I don't remember if it was his rookie season or his second season, but there was a story that he was out uh, with somebody at a Broadway play, and then I got a call from my editor asking if I could find out what play it was, so they could send a photographer out there. It was so ridiculous <laughs> and over the top, and I just thought to myself, "This is absurd from my perspective. I can't imagine what it is living that you know, as a as a young player, a rookie player, a second year player. Uh, there was just so much on his shoulders. There was so much pressure on him." and thankfully for him, he had a, such a great supporting cast on the field that first year and that second year, but specifically that first year where he didn't have to carry the load. But look, he was a New York Jets quarterback. He was a good-looking guy, a young guy, and there was so much attention on him. And uh, now I can't help but wonder if he was in a different place, a different environment, um, you know, with a different set of circumstances in terms of people around him whether his career would have turned out differently. I don't know if he would have ever, you know, become a pro bowler, but maybe he would have found more success at a different place. Uh, again, that's just me thinking out loud. But, uh, but in that moment, in that pre-draft process, uh, yeah, he was excited. He was engaging. Uh, and, you know, the Jets fell in love with him. So once you fall in love with a player like that, you're going to do whatever it takes to try to move up and get him. And if you have Mike Tadamom's personality – And which are super aggressive. If you love a guy, you're going to go up and you're going to try to get him. You know, you saw that a number of different times with Tannenbaum throughout his tenure. Uh, You saw that, uh, you know, a a few years earlier when he traded up to be in position to draft Darrell Rivas, and that obviously worked out. So, uh, you know, I think when they went through that draft process, pre-draft process, and they realized that they liked the kid as much as they liked the player, uh, at that point, I don't think there was any turning back. They were going to do what they needed to do.
0: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Play
0: like a Jet. Play like a Jet.
2: Before we get to the actual trade that landed Mark Sanchez on the Jets, and boy, was there an interesting story about this. Let's talk about the rise of Sanchez up the board. And as you said, the Jets falling in love with him. At what point do you think the Jets realized that being at number 17 just wasn't going to get it done? Because I remember in the lead-up, everybody started to think that Sanchez might actually go in the top five. Did the Jets come to the realization that they were going to have to pull something off? And did they start putting the wheels in motion in their minds of, okay, what can we do to go up higher, go up to the top five and find a way to get this guy? Is that what they had decided that they wanted to try to do?
1: Well, they knew that Sanchez was not going to drop to seventeen, and and obviously, if you looked at the teams in the top five, top seven or so, uh, there's an obvious relationship between Mike Tadimba and Eric Mangini. You know, as we said earlier, look, these guys are, are legitimately friends, and so there's an obvious trading partner there. Uh, look, I, I don't believe that there were substantial, you know, serious talks. Months in advance. This wasn't uh, a Jets-Colt situation with uh, with uh, them moving up a couple years ago to be in position to draft a quarterback uh, that ultimately became Sam Darnold. It wasn't like that. I just think that you know things get heated a lot closer to the draft, uh, and they certainly got heated a lot closer to the draft back then. So it, it wasn't as if uh, you know there were details being hashed out oh, a month earlier. I think this was much more of a Let's, as we get closer, I mean, obviously there's conversations that go on prior to that about would you be amenable to moving the pick? Yeah, sure we would, but, you know, we would probably need this or that. But those are loose conversations and conversations that teams have frequently. But I don't think things got really heated until much closer, until days days before the draft. So, uh, you know, when you have a relationship like Mangini and Tannenbaum had, I think you can, you can strike a deal pretty quickly because you kind of know what each other likes, especially given the fact that Mangini just came from the Jets. So he already, he already knew that personnel inside and out. So when you want to try to cherry pick players, if you're Mangini in a potential trade, you know, which guys you like and which guys, uh, you know, might not make, make sense for what you're trying to build. Just, you know, just as, as we talked about Bart Scott coming to the Jets with Rex Ryan to establish the Rex Ryan culture, I think it was equally important for Eric Mangini to have some of his guys, you know, guys that he coached uh, in New York to to help him as he started off with the Browns. So uh, I, I think a deal, you know, in this particular circumstance uh, can come together pretty quickly just given these weird dynamics at play and given uh, Eric Mangini's familiarity with that roster.
2: Let's talk about those weird dynamics because – The way that the circumstances unfolded was crazy. Eric Mangini, after getting fired by the Jets, winds up in Cleveland as their head coach. And now the Jets are looking to get into the top five. And like you said, Cleveland's sitting there at number five. And so I guess this is a situation where it's a good thing that Mangini and Tannenbaum remain close friends, because if they weren't, I can't imagine that a deal would have ever gotten done. And by the way, this was not the only deal, nor the only major deal that would get done between the Jets and Browns this particular season, and we'll get to the other one later on. But here is where, as you said, knowing what Eric Mangini likes comes into play because when you read the specifics of the deal back now... It boggles your mind that the Jets were able to move up for this price. They gave up Kenyon Coleman, who was a backup defensive end, Abram Elam, and Brett Ratliff, who had been a third-string quarterback, along with their 17th pick and their second rounder to move up from 17 to 5. You tell somebody right now that they're going to try and move up from 17 to 5 in the 2020 NFL Draft— and they're going to tell you it's going to cost a King's ransom. This is nothing close to a King's ransom. So clearly the fact that Mangini had an affinity for some of his former players really helped out the Jets here. Talk to me a little bit about what you remember about this whole process of the trade coming together.
1: Well, I remember thinking that the Jets ripped the Browns off. <laughs> That's my initial reaction. Uh, and look, I, full disclosure, I hadn't really examined and and studied Mark Sanchez Uh Throughout his college career, I just did my work in the run-up to the draft, like you know I typically do. I don't profess to be a college football expert, but I did think at the time that Sanchez was a coveted quarterback and a, a potential franchise quarterback. and And you're right to to give up, you know, to give up a one and a two and then three, let's you know inconsequential players, to be honest with you, uh, to move that amount of spots is really a stroke of genius by Mike Tannenbaum. You can never get away with doing something like that now. You'd have to give up future ones. And, and, I, and I don't really understand what Mangini was doing, to be honest with you. I, I don't quite understand uh, why he valued those particular players uh, like he did. But, uh, hey, you know, if you're, if you're the Jets and you're Tannenbaum, you know, you're not going to complain. You're just You're going to make the offer, and if the guy accepts it, you say thank you very much, and hopefully, uh, hopefully things work out for the Browns. But that's not really your concern. Uh, I, I just thought it was a terrific deal uh, on paper at the time. And you know, I, I don't remember what those draft picks turned into uh, for Cleveland. But uh, you know, Sanchez didn't turn out to be a star player, but he did win four road playoff games, or was a part of four teams that won. Four road playoff games and had, you know, his fair share of, of good moments early in his career. So, uh, you know, maybe it wasn't uh, you know, as lopsided as I initially believed and what most people initially believed. But, uh, you know, in that moment, you got to give Tannenbaum so much credit for being able to give his new head coach, a potential franchise quarterback, without giving up a king's ransom.
2: It's funny you should mention that you're not sure what those draft picks turned into, Manish, because I can tell you right now, the Browns traded down a second time. Tampa jumped up to grab Josh Freeman, who we mentioned before, the quarterback from Kansas State. And so at number 21, they grabbed Alex Mack, who turned out to be a Pro Bowl center. So pretty good pick there. And then with the other pick that they got from the Jets, number 50 overall, they got Muhammad Masequah, the wide receiver from Georgia. He didn't do that much, so the second rounder didn't really pan out, but that first rounder, Alex Mack, was a really good one, and Eric Mangini once again showing his eye for talent. By the way, that wasn't the only move that the Jets were going to make on draft day. It wasn't quite as splashy, but to open up the second day of the draft, which began with the third round, Mike Tannenbaum dealt the Jets' third, fourth, and seventh rounders to the Lions for their third round pick, which was the first one in the third round, and they grabbed Sean Green, the running back, out of Iowa. Sean Green had his moments, we all remember that big play against the New England Patriots in the 2011 AFC Championship game But I suppose the thinking at the time was that Thomas Jones was getting older, his contract was pretty expensive And they were going to have to deal with that, so this was sort of a proactive move to grab Thomas Jones' successor, right?
1: Yes, absolutely, they thought he'd be a bruiser, they thought he'd be a guy who would ultimately take over at the lead back uh, that didn't happen, and, and Thomas Jones, uh, he, uh, he wouldn't go away. He was he's such a good player at a at a later stage of his career. He was obviously a pedigree player. I, I believe he was a top five pick by the Cardinals back in the day, and he kind of one of those late bloomers where you know, he became so effective for them, and they had that nice one two punch. But but uh, Sean Green didn't really you know he never really lived up to what uh, what the Jets thought he would be. He did have a couple one thousand yard seasons. Uh, you know, later a few years down the road, but it was never really, never really that bell cow that they envisioned And uh, his career really petered out pretty quickly. Uh, you know, after the, after his rookie contract, he ended up going to Tennessee for a couple of years and, and then retired before he was 30, I believe. And, uh, I don't know if he played in any other leagues, but, uh, but yeah, that was their thinking, you know, to get that bruiser. It was a really interesting draft in that they only had three picks. That's so unusual. It was, uh, an interesting philosophy at the time in, in the organization because there is a quality versus quantity discrepancy or disagreement uh, in philosophy. Uh, for example, you know, Terry Bradway, you know, former GM, then had been a trusted advisor and scout for uh, Mike Tannenbaum. After Tannenbaum took over as a GM. Uh, Bradway always believed in the quantity over quality approach, which is what the, the Patriots do, for example. Bill Belichick loves to take as many stabs uh, you know, at the draft as possible and take as many swings at the plate as he can. And if you have more swings, you have more opportunities to land uh, the right players. Whereas, uh, Tannenbaum had, you know, as I've said a bunch already, he had more of an aggressive approach, which is, let's go with... Quality over quantity. I'd rather uh, have two or three players who I really believe in instead of you know, seven or eight guys that I take shots on that I'm lukewarm about. And so when you looked at that 2009 draft, you had Sanchez and Sean Green in rounds one and three, and, and then you had a day three pick, or I, don't, I can't remember if it was a two or three day draft back then, but you had a six-round pick in Matt Slauson, who they really didn't even know they were going to pick. They kind of just looked, popped in the tape and it was between Slosson and another guy, and they, they ended up going with Slosson, and that was kind of a stab in the dark. So those are your three picks, a quarterback, a running back, and an, uh, an interior offensive lineman. No defensive players in, in uh, Rex's first draft and only three players, and that's not sustainable. Uh, and, and unless these three guys all become pro bowlers, you, know, you, you can't go through uh, a season having only three players in your draft because you build through the draft you want to get your foundation players through the draft. And while I applaud Mike Tannenbaum's, you know, zeal and aggressiveness and, and go for type of mentality, uh, three, three players in one draft is, you know, that's, again, I don't necessarily subscribe to that being a sound strategy.
2: Matt Slauson strangely enough ended up becoming one of the best offensive linemen that the Jets drafted over the last 10 years and not to throw any shade on Matt Slauson who is a perfectly acceptable offensive lineman but that should tell you a lot about why the Jets are where they are right now, because that is the level of investment that they've been making in the offensive line. Lawson in the sixth round, who turned out to be a serviceable starter. But I think, as you said, when you look back at this draft, the tale here is all the deals that Tannenbaum made and all the aggressive, bold moves. He traded a pick for Lito Shepard. He traded all those picks to go up and get Mark Sanchez. He traded all the picks to go up and get Sean Green. He was putting all his eggs in one basket, Manish, I guess, as we're going to find out later on, and as you already know if you followed the Jets at the time, this was very much a riverboat gambler strategy by Tannenbaum, and while it looked good early on, ultimately it ended up blowing up in his face a
1: bit. It did. uh, Again, I don't think that's a sustainable approach uh, in the short term. It can work. It's possible, but uh, it's not something that can can uh, propel you for, you know, an extended amount of time. And even when we discussed the following season's draft, there was only four players in that draft. So you're talking about only seven players drafted in Rex Ryan's first two seasons. Uh, you know, you need, uh, you need more picks. uh, You need a a better foundation if you want to be good and play at a very high level as a team for a very long time. And the idea of having only seven draft picks in in the first two years, um, you know, that, that leaves little margin for error. And when you look at the players that the Jets got in those first two years, those first seven players, how many of them were foundation players? Uh, one, maybe two.
2: Mike, Tannenbaum's strategy certainly risky, and it would get riskier, as we're going to see later on in this series. Not safe at all the way that you would want to play it with your family or with yourself if you're looking to protect yourself, which is where Simply Safe comes in. If there's a break in, Simply Safe uses real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime, and that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for a normal burglar alarm. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you when anyone's approaching your home. Entry motion and glass break sensors guard the inside. And SimplySafe protects your home from fires, water damage, and carbon monoxide poisoning. With 24-hour-a-day, 7-day-a-week monitoring by live security professionals. Protect your home with Simply Safe. Go to simplysafe.com/slash/overtime today and get free shipping on your order plus a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com/slash/overtime to save on home security today. Simplysafe.com/slash/overtime. Manish, thanks for coming on for part two of this series, looking back at the Rex Ryan era, all the great stories from that time period, and we've got so many more to tell, including. Tons that Manish has never told before. So some real exclusives you're going to hear on the podcast over the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, make sure that you check out our recent podcasts, including Jamal Westerman talking about the experience firsthand of going through all the off-season workouts and drills and combines and everything that leads up to these players going to the NFL. You can hear about his journey that started with an injury at the end of his season at Rutgers and a surgery that he needed to have all the way up through getting to the Jets as an undrafted free agent. A unique opportunity to hear a first-hand story like that, so don't miss it if you haven't checked it out yet. Answered some really cool mailbag questions over the weekend with the very big deal Chris Nimbley including whether or not the Jets should consider using the transition tag on Robbie Anderson, what they should do about Jamal Adams, and some fun non-football questions, too, including a little bit about pizza and television shows. What constitutes real pizza, and what are some of our favorite shows that we're watching right now? So if you missed those, or even part one of the Sam Darnold Project with Michael Nania, which we released yesterday, we're going through all 26 starts of Sam Darnold's career. Michael watched every single play. Came up with a grade for each game. He's got his criteria. And then we go through each game, hit the highs and lows, and explain the grading system and what was different in each game that led to that particular grade. It's a really fun project. We covered the first three games of Sam Darnold's career yesterday. We're going to do more next week. And then tomorrow, of course, don't miss Clayton Smarslock's report from Mobile, Alabama, and the Senior Bowl because we are going to have... Some exclusive content there talking about some of the big prospects that you should be keeping your eye on for the New York Jets in April because, as we know, this draft is going to play a huge part in where this team goes over the next couple of years. If you haven't had a chance to give us a five-star review on iTunes, please go ahead and do that. If you're a fan of the show and you're looking for an easy way to help out, That's the perfect way to do it. It doesn't take you much time. It doesn't cost you any money, but it does a lot for us. So if you could do that for us, we'd really appreciate it. Make sure you're reading Manish in the New York Daily News. He'll be back next week for part three of our series, Looking Back at the Rex Ryan Era, with some never-before-told stories. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. It's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.